Hi, everybody. Welcome to Adam Learns Random Stuff. Today, I'm speaking with Malika Budili, former attorney, current chaplain in an interfaith and interspiritual context. She serves at one of the only trauma centers between the San Francisco Bay Area and Portland, Oregon, which is Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital. And she identifies as a practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism. Today, we're going to talk a lot about what it's like to be a Buddhist chaplain in a world that's primarily Christian. So welcome, Malika. Thank you so much. I should, I should mention that Malika was a colleague of mine when we worked together at Bay Area Legal Aid. Um, we had gone through some very difficult times together, and I really appreciate you being on and, and being here to talk with me. Yeah, it's so good to be here, Adam. So good to reconnect. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about how you went from being a legal aid attorney in San Francisco to being a Buddhist chaplain in Santa Rosa? <laughs> well, I was born on June. No, I won't go back that far. Um, <laughs> but it does kind of, it's sort of a, well, I guess, you know, most chaplain's stories begin a little bit like mine, which is like an event of sheer suffering. <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, even before I was an attorney, um, in December of 2012, I lost mm. my mom to suicide mm. and yeah. she was just like an incredibly courageous, mm. beautiful and brilliant mind and my best friend. Um, and so it was just a cataclysmic loss in my life. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I feel like without going maybe into too much details because this was such an embodied experience i had mm. kind of a mystical experience briefly <laughs> for the first two weeks after she died where i could tell i was just like i could tell that i was suffering so much and that i was grieving and that i was feeling despair and yet none of it was a problem like there was <laughs> some aspect of my awareness and being that was completely bigger than the self I usually consider myself to be, I guess you could say. Hmm. And it was almost like, oh, I feel like I'm the sky. And even though there's a constellation of really stormy clouds going on, mm -hmm. I'm not really going to be harmed by it because I'm the sky. Um, huh. It was a sort of non-dualistic, non-dual experience, but then it mm -hmm. kind of everything re-solidified self and mm -hmm. other. And I felt, you know, Firmly back in my body as Malika, not as blended um, as before. But, um, you know, that kind of suffering can be so all pervasive from grief and that kind of loss mm -hmm. um, that I couldn't help but look at it. So I couldn't ignore it the yeah. way I had ignored suffering in the past. Mm -hmm. um, so I often joke I had no choice but to meditate because <laughs> <laughs> it was like all I was experiencing. Um, but slowly over time I had already had like, you know, I was already into Buddhism a bit. And so now I was really integrating these teachings in a real way with something big, you know, I was kind mm -hmm. of up to the test. Um, and meanwhile, you know, I started a legal career. I think I was always in it for the social emotional contact. Um, mm. you and I you don't hear that often. <laughs> I remember that. That's why I got into law, social emotional contest. Yeah, I mean, you and I were both working where we crossed paths with in a public interest law firm, yes, right? True. Like a nonprofit that helped folks that were experiencing houselessness and disability and 
So I think I was just kind of always in it to make people whole in some way, mm. in a very naive yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. I don't know your views on the legal system, but my views are they're like, it's a super coarse, blunt tool for a very refined human problem. And it didn't take me long to sort of realize that litigation is brutal and not necessarily (laughs) like making people whole. Um, I I I can see that. (laughs) But while and and at the same time, I know that you know, in some ways, I've approached some of the things that I've done for work for very similar reasons. Mm. And you know, I work in technology, so you don't think like, "Ooh, that's because of the social emotional context," but helping people to be more whole or helping people to do things that can help people to be more whole was part of the reason why I was there too. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, your job was super relational. You were helping people with problems all day long. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, where we met Bay Area Legal Aid, like completely salt of the earth, best kind of people who want to change the world for the better. Mm -hmm. And I definitely was drinking the Kool-Aid in one of them. And at the same time, I was like secretly practicing a whole bunch of meditation, lots mm-hmm. of Buddhism, studying death and dying, running off to yeah. retreats whenever I could. And then the clincher was I became a Zen Hospice Project volunteer. Zen Hospice Project wow. is this like amazing organization that trains people to sit at the bedside uh, at Laguna Honda Hospital on their hospital mm-hmm. and palliative care floor. So I'd work like all week long litigating and (laughs) doing advocacy. And then on my Sunday, I would like go on the hospice floor of this San Franciscan hospital and just be there. And I just noticed that I got energized by my volunteer work and just depleted. I was never that good of an attorney. I really wasn't. (laughs) I don't buy that. (laughs) And I got totally depleted by my legal work. And I just started craving some way to do that full time. So I uh, one day just like kind of bit the bullet, applied to seminary and, Mm -hmm. you know, I applied to two schools. One of them rejected me. The other one gave me a full scholarship. So wow. I don't, I don't really believe in vector. science, but that was, that was my quote unquote sign to go for it. Yeah. Wow. And the rest is history. I started just, you know, in seminary, I was working at hospitals and then uh, now I'm a full-time chaplain. So from suffering wow. came service, I guess you could say. And it seems to be not so much a unique trajectory. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, I should mention that one of the probably the things that you and I connected around the most was the death of one of my close friends and colleagues, sorry, yes. um, yeah. when we worked at Bay Area Legal Aid. Yeah. Yeah. You two were so close. You know. And it was, I think my interaction with you felt... Like such, and I don't mean to glamorize your pain or grief. No, no, no. But it felt like such an exhale of relief Mm. just for however long that conversation was, which I also vividly remember. Yeah. Not pretend like human beings aren't these porous beings that feel and hurt, Mm -hmm. you know. And there was just such a relief to just commune over that experience. (laughs) And when I found out you were going to be a chaplain, I'm like, oh, great. Nobody better. Oh, that's so kind. You know, it was the, I mean, you were so kind. 
yeah. and open and, and caring in that circumstance. And I could tell that it was not just something that you did because you saw us as humans, but something that you did because you felt compelled to do that for somebody else. Oh, that's, well, that's the aspiration. I feel like I'm constantly mm -hmm. learning um, or, yeah. or maybe unlearning. Yeah. In the job. Um, trying well, to remain creative. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, it, now it's your job. Yeah. How is that job? What is it? What is it like to, to live in a world where, you know, I, I'm thinking chaplain, you know, where's your collar and your cross? <laughs> and, you know, how does that how does that work with the, the folks that you work with when they find out, oh, you're not a priest right. or a rabbi even? <laughs> When I work at a Catholic hospital, no less. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Santa Rosa. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it's it's pretty, you know, it's such a trip. It's like, it's true that I would say 99% of the patients that I meet project onto me that I'm Christian. And sometimes that works to my advantage, right? Like mm -hmm. they're Christian. And so they see me come in with the big old chaplain badge and yeah. they're assuming I'm a Christian. And so right away, they're, they have a sense of trust and connection. And mm -hmm. We can go deep pretty quickly. Yeah. Other people, it has the opposite effect, right? You can imagine like people who identify as atheist or who are just right. secular meaning makers. They value family and they hold sacred, like how they live their life mindfully, but they don't mm -hmm. necessarily believe in something they can't see or something bigger than them or something right. that connects the cosmos. Um, and those people, I find that like some self-disclosure when people are like, hey, look, I don't believe in God. And if I say, well, look, personally, between you and me, I don't either. <laughs> <That's> where, <laughs> like, the projection gets punctured and you can see it on their wow. faces where they're like, wait, what? But you're a chaplain. And part of this is also, I think, that word. Like most people are like, wait, so do you lead a church? What is a chaplain? Mm -hmm. What is a pastor? So clarifying that sometimes when it's appropriate is um, is helpful. Yeah. Interesting. But I find that like, <laughs> I find from a Buddhist point of view, from at least this Buddhist point of view, there's not a problem in using other people's spiritual love languages and shifting mm. among them. Because yeah. from my point of view, we are all using concepts to go to an embodied experience of reality that in fact is beyond concept. And so hmm. whether somebody um, wants to use like the Islamic poetry as mm -hmm. a portal for understanding or Christian poetry or Buddhist poetry for that matter, I feel like the experiences below these words is really what I'm after. And so hmm. I don't, find a problem with the projections, at least in the chaplaincy context. Um, and I don't find a problem with uh, the myriad of love languages we've developed around spirituality. I love the way that you talk about that. It's such a great perspective to see it as the poetry and the love language rather than the, the, the dogma. Yeah. You know, and I that's like the the framework in a way that you're using to access those deeper places. I mean, doesn't it just feel like religion is like pointing at the moon and we're stuck on looking at the finger. <laughs> like, it's like, but I don't know if that's what it, you know, we can get so 
tight around belonging and non-belonging and right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And we forget that we're just being, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and in that plane of being, being, I also think that's where real healing happens. And that's where um, we see that we were always okay to begin with. Um, Yeah. I'll say that like, to be honest though, when walking around in our Christian centric world, outside of the where I'm serving Mm -hmm. like when I'm in the hospital people's projections Christian normalcy I'm not there to like start a stink with my patients right right in seminary when like or in my training and formation as Mm -hmm. a chaplain oh I would totally make a stink about how Christian normalized things (laughs) were Um, and I think there's some skillfulness to doing that. You know, it's a, it's a form of marginalization that I think few people talk about. Um, I don't know if you felt it too, because mm-hmm. how do you, do you identify as spiritual or religious in any way? Uh, I, you know, it's interesting. I, very complex in that way. So my mom's Quaker. Um, my dad was Jewish. Um, I grew up pretty firmly rooted in, in the Jewish tradition with the sort of side order of Quaker. Mm. Um, I was a member of the Episcopal Church for a long time due to some very close relationships that I had as a, as a kid. Um, I made a decision to identify as Jewish culturally mm. um, prior to getting married to my wife. Um, culturally, um, I think probably spiritually, I would align more with um, sort of some sort of new age uh, interpretation of Buddhism, most likely. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, you know, I I am not a worshiper of any sort of deity or deities. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it very difficult to believe that there aren't things that we can't explain that go on in the world, um, because I have experienced them regularly enough that I can't deny that they exist. Mm. Like the things that you talked about um, in your experience of grief, and like other times in my life where, you know, sometimes they're happy things, Mm -hmm. but it's impossible for me to pretend that those things don't happen. And there's something that's happening on a deeper level between creatures. I wouldn't even say humans, but between creatures on this planet that I can't really explain away as like science. As much as I'm a sciencey person, I can't explain it away. And I've gotten less, I've gotten more and more that way in recent years. So that was a very long explanation to say, yes, I understand what you're saying because I don't align with any Christian dogmatic view. Yes, yes. Oh, no. But yeah, I'm I'm so vibing with everything you just explained. And I wonder, like, to the extent that we're similar in this, like, I'm very aware as a person, you know, I say I'm Buddhist, but like, I think you and I are aligned because I think as a Buddhist, if I'm doing buddhism right i won't need buddhism Mm -hmm. anymore it's like (laughs) this conceptual toolkit that is just like Mm -hmm. help it's almost like a manual (laughs) yeah (laughs) just like um and and don't get me wrong i think i practice it in a very religious way i'm you know i got the chants and the bells and Mm -hmm. the drum and all the things but um but I think like at the end of the day, um, I have an understanding that the concepts are just to get me to a place beyond the level of thought and the level yeah. of form. 
Um, but as somebody who identifies as Buddhist and I w- walk around the world, you know, it's very apparent to me how much things are Christian normative. Like if you're a Christian, you don't think about the fact that you can probably bank that the politicians that represent you are Christian. You know, you can probably bank that like if you were in a custody battle for your kids or if you were ever um, litigating something in front of a jury, you'd probably Mm -hmm. have like a jury full of your peers and people Mm -hmm. of minority faith traditions or of no faith traditions um, can't necessarily bank on that. Um, Yeah. Let alone like more, you know, negative things like Islamophobia and getting your car vandalized because you have like some sort of religious bumper sticker that's not Christian or all. Yeah. So in that context, I really like do point it out and put up a stink, but in the, when I'm being with patients and they are having projections onto me, Mm -hmm. um, I don't do it because I understand that those projections are cumulative from the context in which they are. And sort of almost mm-hmm. blameless in that sense, like karmically blameless. Well, and it sounds like it's helpful to them and to you to have that sort of, I mean, that is the societal default assumption, right? Right. So not challenging that. I mean, you're not wearing a cross, right? You're yeah. wearing a chaplain badge. So not challenging that allows you to help them get to those deeper levels using whatever tools they got, right? Right. That's true. Yeah, it's true. And not only not challenging it, but um, performing their rights. So, yeah, uh, I've done baptisms before, done, <laughs> and you know, I that's where self disclosure is an interesting question. Like, yeah, because you kind of have to tell them if you're going to do a baptism, right? Right. I mean, it's like it's it's interesting because self disclosure is usually cast in your training as a chaplainless in general and no, no, because what that does is it suddenly puts all the attention on you and people can get fascinated on you when you're really trying to privilege their story and their meaning making and how they're perceiving what this hospital experience means and their existential experience. Right. And suddenly when you start talking about your faith tradition, it becomes a point of fascination for them, for most people or a point of rejection, you know, um, so it always feels a little dicey, but when people ask for a baptism, I I usually disclose at that point. You know, I'm happy mm-hmm. to do it. I feel I feel the power of baptism, and mm-hmm. uh, I want you to know that I identify as Buddhist. And I'm so surprised how many people don't care. <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> they really don't care. They just they have a connection with you. They mm-hmm. They want to know what you think about baptism, and I might think about mm-hmm. it differently than some other folks right. or chaplains, but um, I don't mind using language um, to get to the heart of what the parents really want baptism to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's kind of amazing. <laughs> it's you fun. Know, I was thinking as we've been talking, like, it seems to me like being a chaplain in a hospital, and I don't want to... Um, jump ahead, but is almost like like being an emergency room spiritual person, right? Because you're there at these really critical moments in people's lives when they're dealing with grief, when they're dealing with joy, these really intense periods. And I wonder how that sort of like bleeds into the reality of more long-term, you know, challenges that people have associated with those um, life events. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I often, that's interesting. I mainly serve in the intensive care unit in the emergency wow. room. Um, just chaplains as chaplains have preferences and it, and it's also kind of the luck of the draw, which units need uh, a little mm-hmm. bit of affection. And in my case right now, it's mainly those two units. Um, I'll say that I have a serious respect for the power of harm. And so mm. in those critical moments, like a lot of my effort is to not add religious trauma to the mix of all that's happening. Um and so if there's just been a, a, a death or a car accident or something critical, um, to, really, to really eye family members um, and patients about how they're perceiving my presence and to be mm-hmm. mindful of that um, yeah. because of the projections. And it's kind of ironic because in the case of like me, maybe if it's somebody who had religious trauma and they really are, Mm -hmm. you know, they really didn't have a good experience with one of their Christian denominations or one of their churches. Mm -hmm. And then I come walking in the room, you can imagine Mm -hmm. how like an emergency room situation becomes intolerable. On the other hand, like some people who haven't thought of religion or anything in a long time, but it was something of their childhood, something stable, something their grandmother brought to their lives. When you walk in the room, people are yearning for something old and true, you know, some amount of stability. Yeah. So to be like super respectful in those contexts is, is my goal. But have you ever been to the emergency room for your self or someone else by any chance? Um, I have, but I've never had a visit from a chaplain. I spent a reasonable amount of time in, in different, you know, I've definitely been to the emergency room. Um, and I've definitely been to, you know, other places like, um, pediatric intensive care units and and other places like that. So I've, I've, I've been there, but I haven't had an interaction with a chaplain around those visits. I'm so Um, curious if you would be, or like if, before this conversation or before meeting me, you would have asked for a chaplain or no. Yeah. Right. Not a, not a chance. And before I, well, you weren't there. Right. Like if I have to go to Santa Rosa Memorial, you can be damn well. Sure. I'm going to ask for you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, they're all great. They're all actually better than me. (laughs) Oh yeah. Sure. Yeah. It doesn't matter because I don't know them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm the same way. I think like before I got into chaplaincy, I'd be super hesitant because I just would assume it's um, it's I would assume what what is actually illegal that it's somebody who might try to like push God onto me. Or right, right, and, and yeah, and even among I mean among our Christian chaplains, most of the chaplain colleagues I have are Christian and. They are like salt of the earth would never do that. So skillful in elevating like love languages of others as well. Like I'm not alone or unique in that sense. But I do think that like I hope um, chaplains from minority faith traditions start speaking up so that people know like, hey, what we're about is you and your meaning making and existence is hard. And sometimes humans need each other. And that's like all chaplain, chaplaincy is. I can't believe I had to go to school for three years for such an intuitive, an intuitive art form, really. Um, 
you probably didn't have to <laughs> in order to do it. You probably had to in order to get a job doing it, I imagine. That's often the case, right? Right. In many, many areas, it's like, well, you need the credential to do the job, but you could have, you had everything you needed to do it before you went. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And I, I totally shouldn't poo poo the, um, the training too much because we did do a fair amount of study of grief and psychology and mm-hmm. existential pain and how that might be different or similar to psychological pain and um, hmm. ritual and prayer and all the forms that might take and somatic yeah. healing. So it's, it, it helps to have a repertoire. <laughs> well, it sounds like there was a lot of um, education in the different love languages and poetries that, that could exist in that world, which is probably somewhat necessary in order for you to just kind of jump into it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so I I can understand that. Is there, are there circumstances where in your life as a chaplain, you end up following somebody after they leave the hospital or is that kind of like a hard line that isn't crossed? Yeah. Yeah. I kind of learned that the hard way. Um, I think a lot of people ask for your phone number and have kind of Mm -hmm. a pastor kind of you know, they think, well, you're kind of like a pastor. So surely we can talk to each other after this. And yet Mm -hmm. the general recommendation is I don't even have time to see the people who want to be seen at the hospital as is. Wow. And I don't mean to be cruel or anything, but when I'm Mm -hmm. home, it's like the last thing. The (laughs) hospital is like, it's dead to me. (laughs) I go home, I'm like, okay, Um, now I need to not be around old age sickness and death, um, except for my own. (laughs) So yeah, but I think I struggle with that because I don't want people to think that the connection we made didn't matter to me. Right. Um, when it really, when it really did. Mm -hmm. And, And I don't know, like, I don't know your perception of this, but my experience is that in the United States, at least, we're not very good at saying goodbyes. Like, mm. this is where I think, yeah, you're like slowing that process down. Yeah. Because we're so scared of being vulnerable. And when we slow right. down goodbyes, we're scared we'll get shaky voiced. We're scared right. that in processing what that exchange meant to us, we'll mm-hmm. fall apart. And, but maybe it's yeah. like a worthy falling apart. So what I try to do is slow down those, if I've been following somebody or visiting somebody for quite some time, mm-hmm. just like slow that down and explain how much it really meant to me and what I learned from wow. them and um, invite them to share similarly. Some people do and some wow. people don't. <laughs> that's a really good, it sounds like a really great way. And I think that that's, you know, kind of something we were talking about a little bit before um, the, the recording was how we kind of have this idea that, um, those experiences, the experience of grief or the experience of loss or any of those experiences are time limited. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, time limited and need to look some particular way, you know? Yeah. Um, which is, I think like the way I suffer the most, I think is anytime I think that I'm experiencing something, but it shouldn't be there. Right. Um, it's like right. it shouldn't look this way or it shouldn't be this long. Grief shouldn't should be over in a year, as we were talking about earlier, you know. Yeah. And sometimes I find that it actually does take a sage, and I think of all my friends as sages, 
to tell me like, actually it's taking exactly the right amount of time, you know, as excruciating as that is. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, and it seems to me that, you know, one of the other things you were talking about earlier is sort of the power of the, that intense suffering that you felt in sort of driving you towards a path in life that you felt you needed to take. And it seems like if you try to shut it down and time box it and limit it, that power is lost. Yeah, that's right. That power is lost. And it's so interesting, like the difference between when I was a lawyer or training to be a lawyer, I was like, I'm going to go into law to help people. And so Mm -hmm. I had this like savior complex thing. Um, I don't know anything about that. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all have it. And it's, it's part of it is intelligent. It's like, we are adding something to the equation. It's wrong to think that we're not part of the matrix of causes and Mm -hmm. conditions of any given circumstance. We're, we're important. We create ripples right in the world. Yeah. And to think that that's all that's going on is just like folly. Um, But the big difference in chaplaincy, at least for me, and I wonder if this has changed for you over the course of your career too, is I just see the reciprocity. Like most days I just go into work and I think for me as a Buddhist, I want to be free and experience liberation. And so I'm serving to work with my own mind. And hopefully something benevolent or helpful emerges out of that Mm -hmm. to someone else. But I'm really in there to be like, I want you to have a sense of peace or I want you to have a sense of hope. And this is actually really interesting because this is a, this is a theological, I don't really use that word, but like a philosophical Mm -hmm. difference. Right. Um, Sometimes, not all the time, but between Christian chaplains and Buddhist chaplains is that is the goal really to bring hope, um, which is kind of a bad word in Buddhism. Hope and fear mm. are seen as mm-hmm. things we get stuck into. Um, yeah. Or is the goal to be free, to be, mm. and, and that, that's, that's beyond kind of self and other, that we're entering into an exchange that's reciprocal in that context rather than coming in and being a savior. So like I imagine for you, like, you know, you got into IT stuff to help people. And then like, now you talk about it as this relational experience where it really means a lot to you to engage with others because presumably that you're getting something out of that, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's the the whole podcast, right? It's the whole reason I do this. It's the whole reason I do this, you know? And that I think the idea, I just love what you said. The idea of that reciprocal exchange and wanting to both create for yourself and others that feeling of freedom, yeah. that, that freeing is, I think, really beautiful and really special. Yeah. And it's like the trap that I always fall into is like freedom from something. Like right. when it's really like freedom with everything <laughs> and mm. um. Yeah. And, and that, that's interesting in the intensive care unit hospital or the intensive care unit of the hospital or the emergency department, mm-hmm. every ounce of your reptilian brain and your like nervous system is like, mm-hmm. at some moments is like, no, you know, I got to get out of here. This is not, mm-hmm. 
And so what is freedom with that look like? Like, Mm. you know, it can't possibly be at the level of concept because at the level of concept, you're like, no, I don't want this baby to die. I don't Mm -hmm. want this 24 year old who got hit by a car to die. Um, You're not going to find freedom in the world of words and ideas as much as on the level of energy and feeling like, you know, as one of my mamas would say, like, can we just let the brokenness be and let it, let it wear and decalcify the heart. And then that in that way, like, if I'm willing to let that happen, I am free in that moment. Now, whether or not I can do that is like completely up mm-hmm. for debate and it's a practice. That's amazing. Well, you know what? You I think it. we're about ready to end. And I think it's a great spot to end on. So thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And um, I just, I hope everybody else really gets to know you a little bit in this. Thank you so much, Adam. Such a pleasure.